My name is Mason. Um, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm so excited to uh, be speaking to you today. I want to start off by talking about one of my best friends. Uh, I met him uh, when I was going into fourth grade. I moved to Nebraska from Missouri. Uh, His family helped my family move into our house, and we kind of hit it off. And then we were friends all the way through high school. We ended up going to college together. Um, So this friend, I called him this week. Uh, We FaceTimed to catch up. It was awesome. But my friend is a renaissance man um, in every sense of the word. He's the guy that can pretty much put his hand to anything and just be a pro in five minutes. One summer he decided he wanted to play guitar and he just immediately was just amazing. I, I kind of hate him for it, but he's, he's my best friend. So I talked to him earlier this week on FaceTime um, and his wife and, and he, they bought their first house this spring. Um, and I was excited to, he showed me around his house, but I didn't know, but I'm not, I wasn't surprised that it was a total fixer-upper, and he's a teacher, so he's had the summer off, and he spent the whole summer renovating, like, every square inch of this house. Now, remember, this guy's 25 years old, and he's not in construction. He's a teacher, but this is just the kind of guy he is. He redid the floors, the bathrooms, the bedrooms, he knocked out walls, just... Ugh, unbelievable. My wife and I, a couple weeks ago, we fixed our dishwasher by ourselves, and we were so excited. Like, we just with YouTube and a few phone calls to my dad, we were able to figure it out. And here my friend is completely renovating his first house. Um, but taking it back a step further, being the Renaissance man he is, when we were in high school, uh, he started every Christmas making a unique piece of wooden furniture for his mom making all of us look bad, being like, here, mom, here's a scarf. And my friend's mom is getting, like, handmade furniture from her son, so making us all look bad. But I remember uh, one year he finished his, it was like an end table to sit by a couch, and he had me over before he gave it to his mom to just show me this thing that he had made. Um, And this wasn't nails and screws. This was beautiful, old-school woodworking. And he, he just went on and on about every meticulous part of the process, showing me uh, the imperfections in the wood, all the little problems that he solved. He knew every millimeter of this piece of furniture, uh, its imperfections, every joint, every piece that held it together, every problem he encountered. He knew the whole story of this end table um, that he had made. No one knows the created better than the creator. No one knows the created better than the creator. This isn't a truth that we're going to be encountering today in our sermon, that no one knows the created better than the creator. This is nowhere more true than with God, our creator, and you and me, his created. We'll get more to this in a minute, but today's passage tells us that God knit us together in our mother's womb. It also says that God's thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand. Luke 12, 7, Jesus says that God has numbered every hair on your head. So just like my friend knew his end table, even more so does God know you. Not only physically as he's made you, but God knows your thoughts, your heart, your motivations, your pain. He knows you better than you know yourself. And our passage today, Psalm 139, gives us a beautiful and poetic but a clear and important picture of who God is and how he relates to us, his beloved creation. So today, as I jump in, um, what I'd like to do is, is kind of jump back into the psalm and give you an, an outline. We see kind of five distinct um, 
sections, passages, themes uh, that I want to highlight. The first that we see in the first six verses is that you are seen and known by God. You are seen and known by God. It says in verse 1, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Now, while the overall message of, I think this whole passage is, you are seen and known by God, these first six verses hit on it very specifically. First, we learn that he sees everywhere we go and everything we do. God sees you um, from the outside looking in. If you think of God as a spectator in your life, he, he is there watching every move. He sees everywhere you go and everything you do. He sees the outer person. But something else we know is from this passage is God sees the inner person. He knows your thoughts, your emotions. He knows even, I love how David added this, the words you say before you say them. So God's not only a spectator looking at everything from the outside in. From the deepest part of you, God knows you from the inside out. In verse 3 um, in the NASB version, which isn't any better or worse than the NLT, just a little bit more of a literal word-for-word translation, it says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now, scrutinize can also translate as winnowing or sifting. And if you're like me and had no idea what that meant, think of uh, winnowing as filtering. Like if we're um, in an agricultural setting and we're, we would sift or filter or winnow grain or corn, and you would sift it to get the good grain through and to keep the, the chaff or the bad stuff out. But the point that David's making in the kind of the, I guess the, the picture that he's giving us is that God knows you precisely. Each individual grain, the good and the bad, God knows you to this specific deep level. It also says that he is acquainted with all my ways. I love this, my ways. I think about how God knows all of our idiosyncrasies. He knows our tics. He knows our, uh, all the details and our tendencies. Like a spouse or a good friend that spent a lot of time with you, they can see almost how you're feeling before you say anything. God knows us to that kind of specific detail. And in more significant ways, I, I, loved, I read this in my preparation, that God doesn't just know you, he understands you. He understands how you've been impacted by your past and your pain and the situations you've been through. He understands what you're motivated by at the depth of your being. He understands you the good, the bad, and the ugly. The second uh, group of verses and theme we see is that you are pursued by God. We are pursued by God. In verse seven, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. What's cool is David, the writer of this psalm, he writes this portion of his psalm 
about God's pursuit of you, he writes it from the perspective of someone that is fleeing or running away from God. We're hearing about how awesome God is and how he knows us um, thoroughly and completely, but then his res- <laughs> he writes as one running away from God in response to this. We see, I can never escape, get away. If I dwell by the farthest oceans, I ask the darkness to hide me as one fleeing. It's pretty simple what we get from this. There's nowhere we can go to escape him. He is always pursuing you and me. Even when you're actively running away from him, this passage illustrates so powerfully there is no corner where God is absent. There is no corner where God is absent. In my thinking of God at times in my relationship with him, I think of God's pursuit of me as him waiting for me to run towards him. And that when I run towards him, he goes from stationary to running towards me. But this passage gives us a little bit of a different picture, that God is always pursuing you, even while you're fleeing him, even while you're asking the darkness to hide you, God is pursuing you. Now, he won't catch up to you until you turn around, but the minute you turn around, he's right there. He's been pursuing you this whole time. He will not give up on you. What a picture of how good our God is in his pursuit of us. The third theme we see is that we are fashioned by God. Verse 13, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment laid out before a single day had passed. First, something I want to look at, verse 14. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. God has created you intentionally, inside and outside. You are his beloved, made with intention, and he loves you as you are, and he created you as you are with a purpose. This uh, passage also takes us back to this creator knowing his creation. Like my friend knew his furniture, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Every nook and cranny, not only of our physical body, but of our mind, our will, and our emotions. In Romans 8, 26, Paul says that sometimes the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep or that cannot be expressed in words. Verse 27 reminds us that God knows our hearts, and in this, these verses, we're taught and reminded that God knows what's going on inside of our mind and our emotions, and that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us, praying for us with the knowledge that we don't even have for ourselves, praying for the needs that we're not even aware enough to pray for ourselves. It's this beautiful reminder that God knows us so much better than we know ourselves, how well God knows us as the one who has fashioned and created us. The next theme we see is hating God's enemies. He says, oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you, despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. David sums up his commitment pretty well. He hates and opposes those who hate God. 
Now, in previous sermons in this series, which I would encourage you, they're on YouTube. Go watch them. We've had some phenomenal sermons by Roger and all the other guys that have been speaking. It's been a great, great series. But we've reflected on how the Psalms teach us about how to be authentic, how to be vulnerable, and how to be real with what we're really thinking and with with what we're really feeling. And one of those emotions is expressing our anger, both at God and at others. And I would be lying if I said I haven't thought thoughts or prayed prayers, praying God's justice down on people who have uh, wronged me. Even while at the same time knowing that God makes room for that expression, but he loves them and he pours out his grace even on the people that I'm upset with. But I would approach these verses with, with caution and curiosity. The question is, is David simply expressing his emotion about his enemies? If not, then there's this bigger question. Who qualifies as one who hates God? Who's passed on from simply sinful to evil and irredeemable that we could say truly and utterly opposes God? When is that line crossed? Now, what we have to remember is we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we know that God loves sinners, that we look at Jesus' life and he enters into the messiness of the lives of Quote, unquote, the worst of sinners, broken, sinful people, Jesus entered their lives and their messiness, and he loved them right where they're at. So while the question of when have you passed over from simply a sinner that God loves to someone who hates and opposes God, I think this is a really interesting theological conversation. But in the meantime, our simple mandate as followers of Jesus is to be a community that is known by our love. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. First and foremost, this as a community is what we should be marked by. The love, the grace, and the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. God loves sinners. And in my estimate, it's really hard to say or to know whether someone is forsaken, irredeemable, or too far gone. When I read the, the, the gospel, when I look at the life of Jesus, the answer seems to be never. Last theme, our appropriate response to God, transformational intimacy. Here is David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is how we ought to respond to a God who sees, knows, understands, pursues, created, and loves us unconditionally. Our prayer should be, God, you know me better than you know, than I know myself. Help me to see what you see. We just read about a God that sees and knows us all together completely. He pursues us no matter how much we're running. He is right there ready for us to turn around. He fashioned us, creator knowing his created. But this isn't only a response in, our, in David's prayer of understanding, but of repentance. He prays, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Your path, it's a response that is willing to be redirected, changed, and transformed. I don't want to be who I was, God. Lead me closer to who you desire me to be by showing me who I really am and what's going on inside of me. This is David's prayer. In the year 400 AD, Augustine wrote in Confessions, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? 
and prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. German theologian uh, Meister Eckhart wrote, No one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila wrote, Almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin, well-known and highly influential theologian of the Protestant Reformation, writes, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Psalm 139 invites us to a journey of this divine mystery of knowing God and knowing ourselves. See, our primary purpose, our primary created purpose as human beings is for relationship and intimacy with God. This is what we are created for. But the beauty of growing in relationship and intimacy with God is that we aren't just meant to get to know him, but that through getting to know him and being in relationship with him, he, God intends for me to know myself better. This is what's so interesting about Calvin writing, which I don't know, it's hard to tell, which precedes the other knowing God or knowing self, but all that really we walk away with is this interconnectedness of our intimacy with God and our journey of getting to know him is meant for us to get to know ourselves better. Our journey of intimacy and closeness with God is inseparable, inseparable from and should result in knowing yourself. However, much of the church that I know, the modern American church, has been woefully poor at living this out, of knowing, not just knowing God, but knowing self. I see a couple of reasons for this. First, because the journey of knowing self is to work through my past and my deepest pains and wounds, loss, grief, limitations, fear, anger, hatred, trauma, mistakes, questions I'm afraid to ask of God or of people close to me. One reason we struggle to know self is because we're human beings. Our natural reaction to pain is to flee. We don't instinctively turn towards pain, we turn away from it. So that's one obvious reason that I think beyond the walls of these church and any church, I think all people struggle to get to know themselves because it's really hard to walk through our pain. The second thing I see, I think Peter Scazzaro sums up well, Christian's problem with knowing self in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where he says, much of contemporary Christian culture has added to this inhuman and unbiblical avoidance of pain and loss. We feel guilty for not obeying scripture's commands to rejoice in the Lord always and to come before him with joyful songs. Deep down, many of us feel ashamed, like Joe, a visitor to my church, who said to me recently, feeling sad or depressed or anxious about the future has got to be due to my unbelief. This is not God. It has to be related to my sins. I just figured it was better I stay away from church and Christians for a while until I get over it. So our problems go beyond hiding our true selves from others. I think we've heard it in this sermon, and you probably know it well. Our church face. Hey, Mason, how you're doing? Great but I may be just a dumpster fire, like I had a bad week, I'm great. We know the church face, and we're working on being more authentic, right? But this isn't the only problem. For, for many of us, the problem goes deeper, that we don't actually recognize or know what even is going on inside of ourselves. Not only are we hiding what we do know from people, but the deeper problem is many of us don't know what's going on inside of ourselves. When I was in college, 
Um, I was dating my wife, now Taylor, and I remember us having fights and arguments because I didn't feel like I, I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea why. Or I would, we would be going through something tough, and I had no emotions at all. And she would be like, what's going on? What do you feel? What's going on? And I'd be like, I, I don't know. I know something's wrong, but I have no idea why. And while I may have had a decently good IQ, emotional intel- or intellectual intelligence, my emotional intelligence, my EQ, was like below the floor. I had no idea what was going on inside of me. Why am I so angry? Why am I burying myself in work or a hobby and avoiding my family? Why am I so annoyed with my spouse? These maybe are feelings that you felt or habits that you've uh, started to live out. But, and we all have these difficult emotions and these bad habits. But if I asked you why, maybe you wouldn't have a clue why I'm doing this, why I'm feeling this especially for those of us that's grown up in the church, it's likely you've come to an unbalanced view of your emotions. We take verses like, the heart is deceitful above all things in Jeremiah 17, 9. Words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23, dying to self, laying down our life in John 15, 13. Or like we read from Pete, uh, quoting, rejoice in the Lord always. Come before him with joyful songs. We take these verses and in turn, bury and ignore and invalidate our emotions. This last fall, we did a, a sermon series with the youth called Faith in an Anxious World, and it was kind of about tackling the topic of anxiety, a problem that we're seeing rising, not just in the upcoming generation, but in all generations. That's a whole talk in its own self. But I loved how the series framed the idea of anxiety, or really just even in general, our emotions. Is that like, obviously as a in the church and in Christianity, we don't have the most balanced view of emotions because we, we know that like our feelings aren't always telling us the truth. But the way that this series framed it is like, your feelings may not always be telling you the truth, but they're telling you something true. They're telling you that something's wrong and that you need to figure out what it is. And I think that's a, a beautiful way for us to work forward. But what we've been doing in the meantime is burying, ignoring, and invalidating our emotions. And as Peter Scazzaro says, if we pray more, read our Bible more, serve more, worship more, go to church more, we start to mistakenly believe either that we're fine or that these things will make us better, even when in reality we have these deep wounds and sin patterns that emerge behind closed doors during trials, disagreements, conflict, and setbacks. He tells the story of his father who was this faithful attender at church and he served at his church, but it was obvious that whatever God was doing in him there wasn't making any difference at home in the way that he handled conflict with his wife or his family, the way that he treated or was present or not present for his kids. It was obvious that there wasn't an impact Too long, church, have we ignored the call of Psalm 139 for God to search me and know me. Missing a crucial piece of our life journey, how crucial it is that we become emotionally healthy. How intertwined our emotional health is with our spiritual health. To know God is to know self. Like uh, St. Teresa said, um, so many problems in the spiritual life result in us not knowing ourselves and going on that journey. 
My main point today, so if you want to like literally forget everything else I said, here's what you need to remember. You cannot be the healed and whole person God intends you to be without going on the journey of knowing God and knowing self. You cannot be the healed and whole person God intends you to be without going on the journey of knowing God and knowing self. So my sermon today isn't necessarily about giving you all these answers, but it's about inviting you to go on this journey. I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what you're going through and how to fix those problems. I'm inviting you to step forward and to walk into your pain, your your questions, your struggles, your limitations, to begin that journey. You cannot be healed and whole as God intends you to be without going on this journey of knowing God and knowing self. So I've just kind of outlined a few of the barriers that I see that keep us from going on that journey. But as kind of the last part of my sermon, what I'd like to do is go through some other barriers. Barriers, though, that have a lot more to do with how difficult it is to walk through these things in knowing God and knowing self versus these uh, more maybe cultural impacts or just from being a human being. But one area that we struggle to heal, I see, is from our family or our past trauma our family, our past trauma. So don't think, when I say past trauma, maybe I didn't use the right words here, but maybe you're like, oh, that's not me. I've not been through anything like rough enough to qualify for that. So maybe I should have used different words, but here's what I'm saying. I'd venture to say that all of us have had experiences, all of us, and many of us within our family of origin that have formed you as a person. Some good things, but we're here to be authentic. Some bad things. They form how we think, how we behave, what we're motivated by, how we relate to others in big ways and in small ways. One small way that I was formed in my childhood, uh, I have a strong mom. I have a strong mom. My mom is type A, get her done, super mom. She's not just a super mom, she's a super person. I don't know if there's anybody that I admire more than my mom. She's a rock star. Taylor and I, we think we talk about her sometimes. It's like, I don't know how she does it. She's just one of those people. My mom is strong, but as a kid, I had a strong personality too. And later in my life, my mom told me that as she recognized that strong personality in me, that it became her mission to make sure that I submitted, that I listened, and that I wasn't you know, always arguing, that I obeyed. And as a, from a parental perspective, I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. Good job, mom. But I, as an individual, and how this formed me as a child, a teenager, and now as an adult, is that I, I responded a little bit negatively to this. I coped negatively with the way that she parented because what I started to believe is that what I thought and what I felt and what I wanted didn't matter. That was how I coped with not always being heard or listened to was that I downloaded this negative belief that what I felt, want, and thought didn't matter. Now, in my adult years, um, I've been unpacking this, realizing where it started and unpacking this idea that I'm not always right, but what I think and what I want does matter, and I should talk about it. Not make sure that I get my own way, but knowing that that matters, and it's just a a matter of self-esteem, makes me a healthier person. Now, this is a small part of my story, a micro wound in the grand scheme of things, but many of you have walked through much more difficult, life-changing situations. Many of you have walked through parents that were detached and unavailable, whether it was your mom or your dad, and it leaves you craving love and attention. Many of you 
have had parents that had unhealthy expectations of success and achievement, and you've lived your whole life trying to live up to those expectations or to achieve and either prove them wrong or to make them proud. Many of you have grown up uh, having been exempt, having seen examples of unhealthy ways of dealing with conflict, grief, or anger. Many of you, unfortunately but truly, have experienced emotional, physical, or sexual abuse by a parent or a trusted family member. And all of these things and more form us. How we live our life is a reaction to these things that have happened to us. And it's crucial that we invite God's knowledge of us into this part of our life. Search me and know me, God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. God, how did this impact and form me? Maybe it comes down to the level of what things impacted and formed me to my deepest core. God, what, do you, what brokenness in me from my past do you need to heal? God, what messages from my upbringing am I still listening to and living for? Am I living to make someone proud when I should be living to make you proud? Am I going and trying to find my joy and fulfillment in people because I was deprived of love and attention as a kid when I need to be coming to you, Lord? These are the things that happen when we come before God and we say, search me and know me. And we walk through our pain and our, and our hurts and our past. Another area of struggle is in our um, undeserved suffering. I read the story uh, of a missionary kid whose dad died when he was 12 years old in a plane crash. His dad was on his way to the mission field in a dangerous place. And later in his life, this missionary kid, is, uh, he's in therapy, um, seeking help with an addiction. And he realized and unpacked a truth that he had buried for years, that he deserved to grow up with a dad. Because what he'd been told and what he believed because of his faith was the message he had internalized was that because his dad was serving God, he didn't get to be mad. He didn't get to be sad. He didn't get to be upset or hurt or feel anything because his dad had died for God. If it was God's will that he not have a dad, then he should not feel anything. So for years, he buried those feelings and those emotions. At points in our lives, all of us have to deal with suffering that we had no control over, that we had nothing to do with. It's pain that we can't explain away, control, or understand. This is part of the human experience. Many of us, when we go through suffering, we look for a reason why. And as Christians, one of the things we maybe start to do is be like, why God? Why did this happen? Did I do something wrong? Have I been sinning? Has someone in my life been sinning? Is this why? I think deep in many of us is this belief, whether we think it's true in our minds or not, this is what I believe happens in our hearts. We believe that if we obey God, that he'll keep me from serious suffering, that he'll protect me from suffering that's out of my control. But that's not how our broken world works. Just as rain falls on the just and the unjust, so does drought fall on the just and the unjust. This is true. Bad things happen to good people. For me, the story of this missionary kid is such a powerful illustration of what healing looks like walking through our undeserved suffering. Because walking through our undeserved suffering is messy. As a Christian reading this story, it's uncomfortable. Thinking about, it's like, yeah, well, if his dad you know, died serving God. But what we see is that it's messy 
But there's still this truth that this, and this emotion that this guy needed to awaken to and listen to. I deserved a dad. I deserved to have a dad watching my, my ball games. I deserved to have a dad there to hug me when I graduated. I deserved to have a dad there for me when I was, got married. This is true for that young man. We need to awaken to the truth as we go through undeserved suffering that God didn't do this to you while at the same time being brutally honest and vulnerable with God. God exists in reality and he dignifies you and your experience. He understands what you've gone through. We, try, we do all these things to try to control, to make sense of, but sometimes we just need to get real with how, we're, how these situations that we've been through make us feel. Just like the Psalms we've been discussing in this series of lament for anger at people, at life, at circumstances, even at God. Acknowledging the pain and the loss and the grief that you feel. Naming these feelings like, I deserved a dad. I didn't deserve to be treated this way. This wasn't my fault. God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? What are you doing? John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says that when we seek the voice of God and we get quiet enough to listen, so often the first thing we're able to hear is ourselves our feelings, and our emotions. And this totally lines up with what we're talking about today. We start to feel what we're actually feeling, think what we're actually thinking, and then we can begin to hear the voice of God. The voice of God that is saying to those of you who've gone through such difficult things that are out of your control, that have hurt you and kept you down, but you need to hear God saying, I'm so sorry that that happened. What happened to you grieves my heart. What happened to you even makes me angry. I'm here. I'll never abandon or leave you. Come to me. In our suffering, our only response is to draw close to God, to walk through it with him, to journey with him through our pain and our hurt, to come to him in our doubts and our questions and in getting real with God. So when I say draw near to God in your suffering, Again, it's not coming to God inauthentically. It's not about coming to God and acting like everything is okay and like praying the perfect prayer and feeling all the right ways. We come to God authentically and being authentic with ourselves and with him, asking the difficult questions of him, the feelings that we're struggling with. God, what is going on? I don't deserve this. This is making me so angry. But it's in coming to God when we acknowledge how we're feeling, when we're true to the reality of how we're feeling, then God can work with that. He can't work with us when we're living outside of reality, when we're stuffing how we're feeling and what we're going through. But he can heal what we realize is true about ourselves. We've got to get open. We've got to be real. We've got to do this work. Another area of struggle quickly is our human limitations Maybe you felt like I've, I've, I've tried to make all the right decisions given the circumstances, my skills, my finances, my abilities, just the, the, the hand that life has dealt me. I've got these cards that life has given me, but I, it's the, playing those cards, it's not gotten me where I wish that I was. Maybe you don't have the career that you're, you want. Your family or your marriage is falling apart or not where you want it to be. Maybe you didn't imagine yourself living in West Central Minnesota. Maybe you haven't or can't achieve what you wanted to achieve. And all of these circumstances 
bring up difficult questions, feelings, and thoughts. And again, the answer is to get real with God. Go on the journey with him about how you're feeling about your circumstances. Let him heal those things and work on those things. And be reminded that you don't worship God because of the circumstances that he gives you. You worship him, not what he gives you, not the circumstances that he, he places you in. You worship him. We've got to divorce the status of our relationship with God from our circumstances. Is this mysterious and difficult? Yes, but it's a place that God is taking us. We don't worship our feelings. We don't worship our circumstances. We worship him. He wants to take us on that journey. Last but not least, this last area of struggle or barrier are past mistakes. Things that cause us to run from, our vul- run from vulnerability and transparency that cause us to aggressively stuff down our emotions, maybe more than anything else, is our past mistakes. We really don't like looking at the things, the mistakes that I made. Let me tell you, all of us pastors agree, we hate watching ourselves preach on YouTube. Ugh, it's awful. It's like I noticed everything I did wrong. My hands are weird, like all these things. It's awful. And the sound of your own voice, you just hate it, like most of the time. But in a, in a more real way, church, don't you hate looking back on the th- ways that you've messed up, the mistakes that you've made? It just, ugh, it doesn't, it's not just like uncomfortable. A lot of times there's heaps of, of shame and, and guilt and our, a lot of times we deal with it and cope with it in m- many ways. We, we cope with these things by rationalizing and downplaying, trying to say, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. Some of us do that. Some of us, we blame others and we deflect responsibility. Yeah, sure, I was a part of it, but, you know, it's kind of childish. We're like, someone, so-and-so told me to do it. Or we, we, we look to our, you know, whatever circumstances, however we can blame others instead of taking responsibility. Then there's those of us that take on all the blame. We internalize. We hate ourselves for what, what we did. We don't recognize any of the other circumstances. We just take it all on ourselves. And all of these coping strategies are twisting the truth, even avoiding the truth, because it's easier either to not blame myself, to take all the blame, or to act like it never happened. And healing from our past and our mistakes, again, takes us to this place of being brutally honest with God and with ourselves. Some of us need to take responsibility and be humble and be brought low and accept responsibility for the the mistakes that we've made and get on our knees and repent, not only to God, but to the people in our life that we've impacted. We need to seek forgiveness. Then on the other side of the table, there's some of us that need to learn to receive God's grace. You've internalized, you take it all on, you just hate on yourself And you need to re-understand God's amazing grace, love, and mercy for you. You need to learn to see yourself the way that God sees you. That if God can love and forgive you, then you can learn to love and forgive yourself. Receive God's forgiveness, his mercy, and his love. Worship team, if you'll come up. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Church, this is a verse, this is a prayer that we probably need to pray daily, definitely monthly, and probably every year for the rest of our lives. So many of us have been burying our hurts and our pains 
and our feelings for so long, and God so desires that we begin to know ourselves as he knows us, so that we can finally take this journey towards becoming healed and whole. Some of you may need help on this journey. I do. I've been a part of a small group this summer that's been going through this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, by Peter Scazzaro. Love you guys. It's so fun. Every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. kills me. But I would highly encourage you, read the book. It is a great place to start if this, is, if this message has been for you. Something else really exciting that's still in the works here at Life Church is Oaks of Righteousness, which is um, people getting trained right now to walk people through inner healing, process, uh, inner healing through prayer and through one-on-ones. And God's still developing that, that ministry, but I'm so excited to receive and be a part of that. Lastly, our, our community has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to therapy and counseling. We have some wonderful counselors and counseling services in this town. I've been going to a counselor for a year and a half, and it has been, I told you how emotionally stunted I was as a 20-year-old. God has done some amazing things in my life in the last few years, and the work is far from done. But I'd encourage you, if that's something that, uh, a conviction that you're feeling, it's okay. It's not only okay, it's great. God can do some great healing work in those spaces. Also, journaling is a great discipline. Maybe if you uh, were that, that gal or that guy as a kid that wrote, you know, Dear Diary, I like Melissa in first grade. Like, she's awesome. Like, we need to get into a habit of journaling, whether it's daily or weekly, where we just get into this habit of getting real with God. We're not praying, going through the list of things I need him to do for me and for others. Like, make a habit of getting with God and and telling him what you're feeling, what you're thinking, being real with yourself. The more that you do this, the more we make it a a habit of it, the better it's going to be. And remember, lastly, that our faith is a journey, not a destination. None of us will ever arrive, and this work of knowing God and knowing self is for all of us until the day we die. And this prayer of search me, O God, and know my heart, this is a prayer for all of us to pray until the day we die. The, the journey is never done. Will you pray with me and bow your heads? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would awaken us to this truth that we cannot be the healthy and whole people you intend us to be without going on the journey of knowing you and knowing self. Help us to learn and um, internalize this truth, God, that to know you and to go on this journey of intimacy with you is to go on a journey of intimacy and knowing self. God, would you reveal the things in us God, that need to be brought out, the pains we've been burying that need to come to the surface. God, that for years, for decades, Lord, you've been desiring to speak to, to heal, to acknowledge. God, I pray that you would do that work in this room with these people, God, and that we would begin to see a new, unbelievable next level of freedom start to take place in this room and in this church and in this body of believers. God, as we uh, let go of the weights and the burdens that we've been carrying for so long, God, would you do this work today in Jesus' name, amen.